Those new neighbors you get along with so well, they're aliens. And they want you to play their role-playing game. Which makes Steph Cherwell wonder... Why, 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 why is not a movie? Hello and welcome to Why Is This Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story we can rip from the headlines and ask Hollywood why no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vago, author and regular contributor to the AV Club. And this week I'm joined by Steph Cherrywell, who created several web comics in the late 2000s, moved to print with two graphic novels, Pepper Penwell and the Land Creature of Monster Lake, and Widgie Q Butterfluff, and then created several interactive fiction games, including Whitefield Academy of Witchcraft and Chlorophyll. Steph, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us about 1980s YA sci-fi novel Interstellar Pig and why it needs an adaptation on the big screen. So Interstellar Pig uh, was written in 1984 by William Sleater. It's one of his best-known books. Uh, he's also well-known for House of Stairs and uh, Green Futures of Tycho are probably his best-known. And it's the story of uh, a 16-year-old named Barney. He's staying at a beach house with his parents uh, on vacation. And there's one other... A house in the area, and this group of three people moves in there. They're all um, very good-looking. They seem to be independently wealthy. They have strange kind of foreign quality to them, and they're also really interested in Barney and especially interested in seeing inside his house. He kind of gets drawn into their group, and he discovers, um, besides the fact that they kind of seem to have something else going on, um, they're really into this game called Interstellar Pig, and it's a combination board and card game where you play on a, a board representing uh, outer space. You, you play us an alien, and the object of the game is to uh, be the person who's holding the card called the piggy at the end of the game. The piggy itself has no powers, but it's whoever's holding it wins. And you use these uh, different weapons, uh, tools and things to move around the galaxy. Try to find the piggy either in someone's hand or hidden on one of the planets. And at the end of the game, whoever holds the piggy wins and all the others are destroyed along with their planets. So Barney finds them poking around. He does some poking around of his own in their house. Um, he discovers that they're following this, uh, an old sailor who used to live in Barney's house, who went crazy about 100 years ago, who killed someone and uh, claimed that they were the devil and had turned into a demon and had spent the, the last like 20 years of his life um, up, in the, up in the room of the house. He follows some clues out to this island where the other three are going and he discovers in a box at the end of this trail the actual piggy and he discovers that the game that they're playing is a representation of reality they are all aliens and they have been looking for this this thing which ended up on earth a hundred years ago brought by another alien and now by finding it barney has now drawn himself and earth into the game and he has to try to um, keep the piggy safe from these three uh aliens who are now hunting him together but they're also uh, kind of, he's kind of playing them off each other because they are also all competitors who are only uh, temporarily allied. And that's the, the climax of the movie is the aliens attacking his house and how he fights them off. And kind of a nice touch is that in the game, your sort of figures on the game board are all these, are all aliens, but they're the yeah. actual aliens that the people turn into. Yes, uh, yeah, you, you kind of get some foreshadowing of what they're going to be by the, the characters that they play in the game. Um, they're all, for most of the movie, they all look human, but um, they, they are very alien. They're not Star Trek type aliens that are mostly humanoid. They are, they're extremely alien when you actually see their true forms. So you get a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of foreshadowing in their characters. That was a nice thing about sci-fi books in the 80s. Like mm -hmm. movies didn't necessarily have the technology to do 
somebody who wasn't just a person in a suit. Yeah, um, I think uh, I think this would be interesting uh, to do in practical effects, but they'd probably likely be CGI if they were doing it nowadays. And actually, one of the so should I talk about sort of the reason I chose this one? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So the reason that I picked this movie was I thought um, there's so much talk about how there's not a lot of kind of mid-level movies anymore. Like there's uh, very small indies and then you have these huge blockbusters. And I think this would be a great movie for a studio that could, um, that could do something on, you know, one of your like maybe $10 million budgets and still have it look good. Cause it's a, it's a very small cast. There's the really only significant characters are Barney and three aliens. Um, there's also his parents and um, and I made I um, I have some notes here. A couple changes I would make. I would actually add a character, but I'll come back to that when we talk about casting and things. Um, there's but there's Barney's parents. There's there's a uh, there's kind of a caretaker, but it's mostly just those four. The sets are it's largely just two houses and uh, two beach houses and a nearby island. You don't have too much in the way of special effects, but you still have some cool stuff uh, at the end with the alien attack. So it's uh, so you definitely you have some some neat stuff for the trailer, but uh, but it's not going to be a, a massive like bank breaking blockbuster to make. You can actually make it uh, probably on a pretty reasonable budget, and I think it would be great for uh, maybe like a new director to kind of get into experience with. Well, yeah, I guess especially because even if you whether you use practical effects CGI, it doesn't really come into it until the third act when the reveal is that they're actually aliens. That's why I thought it would be a really fun movie. I think you could make it either. You could go a couple ways with it. When I was reading this, I actually had remembered Barney being a lot younger. I remembered it as, as being more of a middle grade book. Uh, and I thought, oh, he's about 12. And I was actually surprised when I read it and he was uh, 16. And it's definitely, um, content wise, it does have a few things that put it in the YA category. There's some mentions of sexuality. There is no actual sex, but he talks about you know, how hot these, uh, these sort of older, really good looking people are. There's some language, but I think you, you could actually make this, you could make it into a kid's movie or you could make it a little darker and make it into a, a more of a PG-13 movie. And I think it would work either way. I think I would, I would personally, I think the aliens are cool enough that I would go darker with it. I think justifiably you could make a good movie uh, with either approach. One of, one of the things that struck me about this book is I read this as a kid because I was a big sci-fi reader you know, in the 80s. But I'd mostly forgotten this apart from the title and the very, very basic idea. And reading the synopsis again, catching up on this, the thing that struck me is it starts off very light in tone. It's got kind of a silly name. Mm-hmm. It's about like kids playing a board game and, you know, like a board teen on summer vacation. And then it gets really dark. When you get into this like sea captain who's gone insane, is living in an attic for 20 years and scratching mm-hmm. weird messages on the walls, like it's very like yellow wallpaper. Yeah, you've got, um, I mean, you've got the, the whole treasure hunt aspect. Um, and then the fight and, at the end, I kind of remember it being not like, hey, it's still a game. Like, no, it suddenly mm-hmm. gets like, it gets really real. It's suddenly like life and death and kind of violent. I mean, there's a lot of tension because for a long time, after they've kind of caught on to what he's doing and he realizes who they are, they're still being very affable with him. Um, they're inviting him over for dinner and, you know, before they make their move. And there's a long time where he's wondering, when's the other shoe going to drop? Um, there's actually a scene that's kind of like the judgment of Paris or the sort of the three temptations of Christ where they all kind of take him aside and offer him something amazing uh, that he, if he will ally with them and give oh, yeah, them, yeah. that kind of gives you a little insight as to what, uh, who they are too, because you get a little bit about, um, you know, you find out that they're not really, 
they're they're working together for most of the book, but they are ultimately all planning to backstab each other. And you get a little more about what they value and uh, and what what they're trying to tempt him with. So do you have any ideas for who directs this? I didn't actually have a director in mind because uh, I went looking through a lot of like up and coming directors and uh, I find I don't have a great eye for direction unless the director is somebody really, really distinctive like Tim Burton. Um, I don't, I don't really see the directing when I'm watching a movie. So, so I had more of just a range of, I'd like to see it given to someone who's like done an indie movie and is now kind of positioned where they're ready to break out into something a little bit larger, kind of as a way to, uh, as a way to introduce maybe some more um, like, you know, younger filmmakers and give them a chance to do this kind of project. But I didn't have um, a specific one. I mean, I think there's ones you can, you could give it to it and it would be interesting. But uh, I think like the, if you do like the Steven Spielberg version, it's really different from like the Quentin Tarantino version or whatever. Sure, sure, sure. I was looking to see like who's done YA sci-fi movies, mm-hmm. but all the YA movies that fall into sci-fi are all these big like dystopian kind of epic yeah. blockbuster things, which this really isn't. Yeah, I think, um, I think with this, um, a lot of people are going to hear YA and think, oh, it's like a dystopia with a love triangle in it, because that's kind of what got made into movies the last few years, or the last, uh, well, not even the last few years now, it's really more like that whole period from maybe uh, 2005 to 2015 was when they were like really prevalent. Well, just one, once the Hunger Games was big, everybody just wanted the next Hunger Games. Yeah, so there's and, a lot. And didn't really uh, care beyond that. Divergent, um, Maze Runner, and all that stuff. And this really isn't like that. Yeah, I, I sometimes look to TV, looking for up-and-coming directors, unless there's somebody who's done, like, their first movie, mm-hmm. and done an indie that's kind of, that seems like a good fit. So I was thinking maybe whoever's directing his Dark Materials or on Sears Unfortunate Events. But the one thing that seemed, or the one director that I found who seemed maybe too on the nose, like a good fit, is Gil Keenan, who did Monster House, City of Ember, which were both kind of supernatural uh, or, yeah. and or sci-fi, like teen movies. And then he's done the, pol- the remakes of Poltergeist and Scream and is writing Ghostbusters Afterlife. So I feel like we need to break this guy out of doing remakes of things that were actually big in the 80s and do a thing yeah. that's big and that was small in the 80s. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really, um, that's a real possibility. I did like, I liked City of Ember a lot. Um, I know, I, I don't think it did very well, but I really liked the book. And so, um, so it was really cool to see it adapted um, to the big screen. The movie was also one of those like surprising turns from Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did, he did the mayor. mayor. Um, yeah, he was he was good as the corrupt mayor, but it was such a petty and sad kind of corruption. Like his big indulgence was that he would like go into his secret room and pig out on like canned fruit, and it's like that was this world's equivalent of being obscenely secretly wealthy. It's it, it's weirdly almost kind of Trump like that. Like you know, he has all this power and just wants like somebody yeah. to bring him a diet coke and some yeah. McDonald's. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> So for the cast, and if you want to start with, with Barney or the neighbors. Um, so I'll start with Barney, I guess, because he's the main character. So I was thinking, uh, I always have trouble finding um, young actors because then, um, you know, I, like a year after I learned them, they're, they've all gone up a category. Oh, like exactly. Just, if you, if yeah, you I like was thinking six- like, what? Oh, child actors. Oh, Haley Joel Osment. Oh, he's a child, <laughs> right? Chloe <laughs> Grace Moretz. No, she's like an adult now. She's in that Tom and Jerry movie. So the one I came up with, um, so things we know about Barney, um, he's, he's a really nerdy kid. Um, he's probably pretty thin. I want to distinguish him from the others who are all described as being kind of like Greek gods. 
he's described in the book as being a, a ginger, which is actually a, like a plot point because he's um, at one point they trick him into getting sunburned, which he does very easily um, to try to take him out of commission. Uh, and him, him just being easily burned is really uh, is significant in this. Um, the one person I sort of had written down was uh, no, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Noah Schnapp, who played a Will on uh, Stranger Things, and he's about the oh. right age currently. He's 16. It's it's really funny. Like I have a running joke in the show that when I need young actors, I just go to Stranger Things because those are the young actors that I yeah. when they're they're all still legitimately young. Yeah, and, um, and and he's like he's a teenager now, and he's um, I mean he's kind of got that. Uh, at least he, he sort of plays a nerdy character on the show, so I already know he can kind of do that. Um, Barney is, I mean, he's a sci-fi nerd. He gets really into this this sci-fi game, uh, and he likes, uh, he has a very adult way of speaking, which might just be the way William Sleater writes, but the, like the writing, it, it seems like he's one of those kids who sort of preternaturally oh, yeah, he could absolutely an erudite in his thoughts. Well, I just thought it was funny because my pick was Gaten Matarazzo, also from Stranger Things. <laughs> oh, he's the one who plays Dustin. Okay. You know, who's uh, also yeah. like nerdy and overeager, and you can, I could just, he seems the kind of kid who would get into a life and death struggle for the fate of the universe because he was bored on summer vacation and just wanted some older kids to talk to. But I think either one of them would work. And funny enough, like in previous episodes, I've already cast Caleb McLaughlin, Millie Bobby Brown, and Phil Wolfhard. Schnapp and Matarazzo are, are the two that I haven't cast, so I think either one of them works here. And in the pantheon of the show, we're going to get all those Stranger, kids, stranger yeah. Things kids some work. So, um, so the next one I have down is the, um, the Three Aliens. And these, I think, were the most kind of interesting to cast. Um, I kind of looked to see if there was an age given. Um, there isn't really. I got the vibe that in the book they were maybe supposed to be 20-somethings. I, I cast them a little older because um, I'm going to go through the all, all three aliens because there was one who I immediately had someone I knew was perfect. So the first one is uh, Xena, uh, is her human name. Uh, she's actually Zulma, a giant spider, but she is human for most of it. Uh, so she is very intelligent. She's very crafty. She's kind of the leader. Um, she tends to fight a lot with, uh, with some of the others. She's the one who kind of does uh, the most getting to uh, Barney, inviting him into the game. Kind of, um, she, doesn't re- she doesn't do anything, but she's a little bit seductive and playing off on that. And I thought, so, I need, so all the aliens have to be conventionally attractive because that's part of their disguise. Um, and that's kind of a big thing they do. Um, and she in particular is um, like, she's got a kind of an unearthly, unearth, unearthly quality to her. Well, that's the thing. I was uh, actually thinking they need to be unconventionally attractive. Like they need to have kind of an otherworldly appeal. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's uh, I think you can go either way with it. But I, th- I had someone who really worked, I think, perfectly for this one. Um, so they've got to yeah, be a little bit, a little bit uh, off kilter or a little bit uh, unusual. She has to have a playfulness, but also kind of a meanness to her. And so I thought of all this and I thought, okay, instantly, Audrey Plaza. Oh, yeah. Perfect for this character. I think she should do a great job. She can be, um, there's a lot of comedy to her, but she's, uh, she can be really vicious uh, acting and just kind of have that, have that mean streak. Well, so also, I think, like, I don't know if you saw her in uh, season one of Legion. Uh, yes, she's in Legion. She played... Uh, like she was, was so, Lenny, Lenny, yeah, yeah, she was so freaking good in that. Like they wrote the part for a 50 year old man and then like either she convinced them or they just decided to give her the part. They didn't really rewrite it. And she just burns it down. Like she is so everything you're talking about. She's like by turns, she's like seductive and deranged and terrifying and like the pal you want to hang out with. And she just has all these turns sometimes from like moment to moment. Okay, I didn't actually know that about Legion, and that kind of explains why they did the thing where it was confused between Lenny and Benny, and there might have been another person, and they never really completely explain it. 
So that's, that's interesting. And, and it also kind of explains why the main character like has as much younger woman as just like his drug buddy. Yeah. It would have made a little more sense for like an older guy who's like a, who's a burnout, but, um, mm. but yeah, she was just so good in that. And yeah, I could see her there. I had, and maybe this is because her name starts with a Z, but I kept coming back to Zendaya because she's also sort of another otherworldly beauty who's impossibly cool, but also has this real wholesome quality where she can be approachable to a 16 year old and kind of flirt with and try to seduce without it being kind of pervy that like a 20 something is, you know, yeah. kind of I, I, can definitely, I can definitely see that. And she's, she's probably closer um, to the age that, uh, that was intended, I think for the characters. Yeah. I guess I think you're thinking a little older. I was thinking like early twenties. So they're not that much older than Barney. Yeah, most, um, most of the ones I got were um, I, three people I liked, and they all kind of get progressively older. Okay. Um, so it's just, I really liked the actors. Um, I feel like if you, were, if you were like having the ideal magic casting, you would grab them from like a decade earlier. Yeah, exactly. So second one um, I want to talk about is um, Joe or Gerald, who is in his natural form is a fish-like alien. But uh, he's sort of the, the coolest. He's the one that doesn't really argue as much with the others. Um, he's very logical. He's also the one that, um, as soon as things start going bad, he just leaves. He just runs off to his spaceship in like the, the final uh, climactic confrontation. So he's very pragmatic. He doesn't, he doesn't get vindictive or try to get revenge. He's just, this isn't working out. I'm out of here. Person I had for him. So like the others, he has, he has to be, um, the characters, um, they have a kind of a physical description, but I kind of ignored it. It was very what a cool guy in the seventies would look like. Yeah. So, I think, I think in general, you don't need to stick yeah. by the eighties. So, so I thought, so it's gotta be someone who can um, play kind of uh, intellectual and also who's like really buff and cut. And I thought, okay, William Jackson Harper. And he was a uh, cheaty on the good place. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was, I mean, so not only um, does he have this, now he played a really nice guy in there. So I thought it'd be interesting to have him play kind of the smart guy, but um, the one who's ultimately a little, a little meaner. And also he is, as seen in one episode, he was like incredibly cut. Yeah, they kind of played that for laughs. Yeah, they, the show they had to take so off unexpected. his shirt and it was like, oh my God. So I thought, um, I thought he would be um, a solid choice. Also the, um, the cast is like pretty much blindingly white in the original. So it's nice to try to get a little bit of diversity. Oh yeah, and again, it's, it's written in the 80s. Mm, and, yeah. Um, and yeah, Harper's 40, but he d- does not look at it at all. Yeah. So you can, I think you could just cast him as a 20-something uh, hanging yeah. out with some of the people. I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of imagining that we're, that we're, imagine, that we're like having them in their, their 30s or, or... Yeah, or, and that's fine. And there's also, there doesn't, there's no reason there can't be an age range among the aliens. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's never, um, I, I tried to find an actual age and I don't think I'd ever gave one. That's just kind of a vibe you get that they're supposed to be a little younger. Yeah, I guess in, I had in my head that like, they're a little bit old, like the kind of cool older kids that a teenager would want to hang out with. Because after a certain age, you're like, well, you have jobs, you're adults. This is, you know, yeah, I think, you're, you're I think boring. That's the, I think that was the intent. So I might be going a little but bit. I, but I also feel like there's a thing of like, who are these people and why are they hanging out together? And how do they have this cabin in the woods? And like, mm-hmm. they don't need to make sense necessarily as people who would hang out together. Because that's kind of part of the mystery is like, what are people doing together in the woods playing this board game? So I think you can play with the ages for that reason. Yeah, and I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm, ideally, I think I would like grab all these people in their like their mid-20s because they ended up being, um, it's like, oh, if only I could go back in time. Oh, sure, but sure. But it's but like, you know, we're, we're, do, we're not actually doing this anyway, so. 
Well, it, yeah, it's all hypothetical. So you, if you if you need to do time travel or or just cast somebody you know outside of their age range, or, and also yeah. William William Jackson Harper is fantastic. And I actually I didn't have anybody good for Joe. So like okay, well, this is the kind of person we're looking for, and then try to find someone uh, like a younger actor who kind of fits that that vibe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so who, do you, who did he have for Manny? Who turns into so Manny? Uh, Manny's an interesting one because uh, uh, Manny is Moya, an octopus alien. Um, so she's for most of the for most of the movie uh, most of the book it's Manny. Um, she, she she uses a male disguise. She's actually somebody I would change a little bit because I feel like in the original book she kind of comes off as uh, there's a bit of a kind of like oh this 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 big muscly guy and he's very effeminate and it's kind of uh, it's kind of writing on a little bit of into some stereotypical maybe subtext. I don't think it was ever overt. Okay. I feel like it would be really easy to do Manny in a bad way, but uh, she's more playful. She's more emotional. She's the, she's the one that argues a lot with, um, with Xena and uh, Joe kind of keeps out of it. Uh, and at the end, um, she's the one that Barney kind of confronts her with like, well, you were the, you, you were the nicest one. And she says, well, I was just a better actor than the other two. So there's kind of, um, <laughs> so you need somebody who's, who can play both this kind of lovable goofball and someone who can then turn around and have a real mean streak and uh, be a villain. And I thought, here's another, here's another actor who he's right out of the, he's really out of the age range, but I really think he would do a good job if I could just like grab him, you know, like 20 years ago. And that was Alan Tudyk. Oh yeah. 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 Cause he's, I mean, he's, he's played absolutely lovable characters like, you know, wash on a firefly. And then he's also, He's done villains. I mean, he was a villain in Dollhouse. He was, he's, uh, he's on Doom Patrol and he does a great job with it. And again, I was like, he's, uh, he's 47. So he's a little bit, uh, he's a little bit older really than would be ideal. But uh, either him or somebody with that kind of quality, I think would do a really good job in that role. Well, I, I went in the complete opposite direction age range or age wise, because this is a young actor. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually, I think, stumbled into a good choice to deal with. I had forgotten that Manny was uh, male in human form and female as an alien. Mm-hmm. And not knowing that, I picked a non-binary actor, uh, Ian Alexander, who was on this show, The OA, which was on Netflix for like two seasons and kind of canceled in the middle of its run. Like it clearly had an ongoing story they didn't get to finish. And they just showed up on Star Trek Discovery in a supporting role. And oh, is that, is that um, Adira? No, it's their, um, their ex who... Like is oh, living uh, in her memory. Okay. Oh, right. Cool. Yeah. 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 And I just thought like that actor is, um, you know, is attractive, but has this kind of otherworldly quality. And I only sort of picked them for that reason, but it kind of makes sense having a non-binary actor in this role. Yeah. Because that's, no, I, I see. I see where you're going. It's definitely good to have. Because um... and I, and again, I I wasn't thinking about this because I didn't realize this about the character, but I think the way the author was trying to play with gender in sort of a clumsy way in the '80s, I think you could kind mm-hmm. of do it in a sophisticated more. 2020 is appropriate mm-hmm. way with the casting. So that's basically all of the, um, the real significant cast. There's also mom and dad. I didn't really have anybody for them. I think any, any, anyone who can play a mom and dad could really go into this role pretty much as long as they look like they could be Barney's mom and dad. Yeah. They don't really seem to be characters. Yeah. They're um, much, all they do is do, um, do mom and dad stuff, disappear when it's important <laughs> and um, kind of uh, very blatantly lust after uh, some of like the, the neighbors uh, in this way that indicates that um, the aliens have kind of are kind of messing with their perceptions because uh, Barney's mom is all um, like uh, 
she's like, those guys look like they could be models. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure why that girl is hanging out with them. She just doesn't have the stuff. And then dad is all like, like, what is that woman doing with those two losers? <laughs> so they're, they're, they're very clearly perceiving um, the people they're attracted to as being a lot more attractive and kind of ignoring the others. Huh, um, I, I forgot about that. That's really funny. So I actually, as I was reading this book, there, um, I noticed one issue, uh, one problem with filming it, which is that a lot of the things Barney is finding out, it's all happening inside his head. He's, um, he's thinking about the situation. He's figuring stuff out. He's reading these old um, diaries or letters that he's finding, both from, uh, he's reading articles and things about the, uh, about the captain's brother and things and figuring it out. And I would, my solution to that was let's do what they did in the movie Coraline, which is let's add another character that um, that's the, in Coraline, they added YB. So Coraline had somebody to sort of talk things through with. So you could understand sort of what her thought process was because she was explaining it to someone else. And I thought, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll add, um, Barney is, you know, here on vacation. I will add a local person. Um, and it really could be anybody. I just sort of had a, a girl in mind because I thought, uh, okay, that's a little more gender balance, but, uh, but it could be anybody. And I thought, okay, she'll be somebody who's like, she's working for the summer, um, like doing tours for the historical society. And maybe she bumps into him um, because he's in this house that has this history it used to belong to this, uh, the sea captain, his brother went mad and she could kind of fill him in on the history. That way um, you have, it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be him sitting and reading. You can have somebody who actually knows the stuff talking about it. I think it's an interesting kind of mirror if you had them both be kind of dorky, but maybe, uh, but maybe he's, you know, he's a science fiction dork. He's focused on the future and she's more of like a history dork. Oh yeah. You can fill him in on this, uh, all this local, uh, local stuff. And, and then also you have, they could work together during the climax and the person I wrote down for this, and I think, I mean, this isn't a character who's in the book, so it could be anybody. I thought, if I want kind of a, a bubbly, kind of nerdy character, I think uh, I have Angelica Washington, who is on Stargirl. She plays Beth, and she's just a very, uh, she's like a very, a very friendly, and you know, I'm not saying that she, uh, all actors have to play the same thing every time, but that I, have, I know that she can play this kind of role and be, um, be really cool. And she's also, she has a very outgoing quality, which I think would sort of work well with Barney being a little more introverted. So you have this person who can kind of draw him out and get him to talk about uh, his theories about what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. You kind of, you kind of need somebody to like push them here on drive the action a little bit. Well, I actually had a different, a different solution to that same problem of him just sitting around reading, which is to just flash back to the sea captain Normally you don't want to do just flashbacks and voiceover to tell the story, except mm -hmm. it is this kind of compelling and dark thing where this guy sees something that drives him mad. And there's like a mysterious Island, which Barney has to go find towards the end of the story. And just as like, I don't know, sea captain who goes mad. I was thinking Michael Shannon because he's always great at playing these intense characters who kind of teeter on the brink of insanity. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it'd be cool to have that. Um, what and, I, and there's I, no reason you can't do both, too. Yeah, you could do both. My thing was that once I had sort of thought of, oh, this is a really small scale um, story you could do on the cheap. And it's like, do I really want to have a whole like big period piece on a boat with a bunch of uh, sailors? And it's like, it's going to be more expensive. So I think I think ideally you would have it in there, but uh, but it kind of didn't fit with my conception of this as something that would be uh, like, look really good on a budget. Oh, sure. I mean, you could just have him be a fisherman who's, you know, just he and his brother on the two-man boat. But you're, but yeah, you, you can make it as simple or as uh, expansive as you want to, really. 
Yeah, so let's see. So there's a few other notes I wrote down about things that um, I would address. Yeah, yeah. There's a few things in the book that um, they, they read perfectly fine when you're reading them, but when you try to visualize what's actually happening, they're a little confusing. Um, one is the nature of the game that they're playing. When they're playing Interstellar Pig, uh, it's described as uh, just a board and card game. But as they're playing it, he kind of describes um, what's going on as, oh, this is just my imagination. But at some point, it, it seems like actual game things are physically occurring in a way that isn't that doesn't really work for just a card game. The, the, he talks about characters um, fighting in, in a very real-time kind of way as they come onto these planets. And uh, there's, other th- there's other things that are a little confusing. Um, he, the different characters have different intelligence scores. And one thing he says at some point was if you have the lower the number you have, and a lower number is good, the lower number you have, the more smart moves you're allowed to make. And if you have a, if you have a really high number and your character isn't smart, you, you're sort of restricted into playing badly, which is a very weird design choice. And he talks about, at one point, how like he, he makes a bad move, and then he talks about later, well, if my character had been smarter, I could have made this other move. But at the time, he wasn't, that wasn't how he described it. He didn't say, uh, oh, man, I saw this, but then they wouldn't let me do it. He, he just actually seems to not, it not occur to him. So I yeah, think if you're there's doing also it, this, this weird sort of eugenics thing of like certain species they just have are naturally more intelligent. Yeah. Um, I mean, the interesting thing, I, I, one of the summaries I read kind of addressed this, that his species has, uh, humans have a, a fairly high score as that goes, 93, which is the second stupidest of anything that you see on the, <laughs> yeah, uh, the uh, most of the others are much lower. Um, the only one that's, Higher is the uh, the lichens, which are the this sort of communal creature. And, and again, a, the high, higher scores are bad. Higher scores are bad, yeah. So, but and yet, when he's actually fighting them, he ends up outsmarting all of them. So he at one point he says maybe they maybe they don't really know what they're talking about uh, with those scores, or that uh, maybe they maybe they were he was right in the first place, and that the higher scores are actually better, and they just have it backwards out of pride. <laughs> But I think I feel like that's that's a thing you could sidestep entirely. Yeah, you don't really need to make that a big deal, but I do think you need to figure out how you're going to represent the game, because in the in the book it kind of works to have them playing, and then suddenly it goes into like his dream sequence, and you kind of go along with all of it. But in, in a visual medium, I was trying to think how would you make this game really interesting and still kind of represent what's going on. The, the only thing I thought was um, I was kind of picturing it as. Uh, the Adventure Time episode Card Wars, where they're playing the card game, or Yu-Gi-Oh! would be another comparison. And the Yu-Gi-Oh! show, when you have people playing this card game, and yet everything they're doing is kind of popping up in this holographic display that's actually happening on the field of battle um, as you're playing. And I think you could actually do that with like, uh, this would be another way to do something that was relatively inexpensive. You'd just be kind of doing this CGI overlay right on the board with some characters that could kind of look they wouldn't have to look completely realistic because you're you're doing a representation, and yet you could, uh, and yet it would still look really cool um, doing these kind of hard light images showing up, and you could kind of explain well, you know, you put the cards in, but then the, you know, the computer is is sort of a- analyzing that and then playing out the scenario, and and you kind of want I don't know how you want to do the effects in such a way that the audience isn't sure whether this is really happening or not because Barney has the same feeling. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of different ways I think you could you could portray it. 
uh, and you maybe maybe make it more almost more realistic as he gets more drawn into the game because for the first the first time he's just sort of playing a game and it gets kind of more and more invested as they're doing several games over the course of the book. Uh, the other thing um, I thought was a little bit um, a little bit not addressed in the book and would sort of need to be addressed in a movie. So the characters uh, the aliens are human for most of the book, uh, and that's because they describe it as having some kind of disguise technology that lets them pretend to be human. The disguise technology, it's not just like a hologram because Barney actually uses it later too and it physically turns you into the thing. So it's an interesting uh, piece of technology. Um, they, kind of, they kind of go back and forth on whether it's illusion or whether it's a physical transformation because both are kind of addressed. Here's where I would sort of add something to the plot that would kind of size up having to explain the way this discrepancy is that I would have the aliens be using be using some some kind of like human puppets almost like you know like they've they've grown these kind of vat clones that are just kind of hu- humans that they can control from within their spaceships which makes um and they're very cautious so this makes sense as something they would do uh, something that um, where if they get killed it wouldn't kill them permanently and what i would do is there'll be a climax before the big climax where they're kind of doing the dinner party thing they end up with uh, the part, the mask off part, where they uh, start playing in earnest, and have them have one of them, at least one of them, end up killing the others, and uh, and they end up either all being killed or all or just leaving, and that's when you have the actual aliens come out of their spaceships, oh, okay, and compete for real. So uh, you you see you see one of them, like uh, Manny shoots Xena. And Barney is like just sort of like freaking out about it, and and then you, this is when you learn that they're not um, that they're really not at all what they're pretending to be, and you you like go to this spaceship and see the oh yeah like maybe the, maybe the, the, like human... the, the door opening and uh, like a big spider leg coming out. So yeah, that's maybe... that's kind of changing a lot about it, but um, but I think you would be changing a lot about the climax anyway if you're going to have two people in there. So again, I'm, oh, sure, I'm, kind, sure. of, I'm kind of playing around with um, with how this ends and. Um, and just also because it kind of ends with Barney having to be um, like in this destroyed house, basically knowing that his parents are coming home soon. <laughs> um, so it's, it's like, well, imagine um, that same situation. And there's like three bodies just lying around that he now has to deal with. And I, uh, I, I was, I was just thinking too, that like when the human bodies, the aliens are inhabiting die, like rather than just bleeding to death, like they did, like they melt or dissolve or something like really inhuman you know, is like the first sign that like, oh, this is not, something's not right here. Oh yeah. I mean, that, that, that also simplifies too, because you don't have to, you don't have to have him like having to hide bodies. There was actually a sequel to this. It came out in uh, early 2000s. And you, you find out in the sequel that he did, he did in fact get in a huge amount of trouble and got grounded for like the entire summer. The sequel was mostly not really as compelling, but uh, it was clearly written because uh, William Sleater thought they were going to have a movie and he was going to capitalize on it. Well, the, the funny thing is he even referred to a film adaptation in one of his later books, The Duplicate, which he wrote four years after Interstellar Pig, which is basically multiplicity. Like this kid mm-hmm. finds a device that lets him duplicate any living thing. And so he makes, it's kind of dumb and sitcom He like makes a duplicate of himself so he can send the clone to his grandmother's birthday party and he doesn't have to go. But then the clone is like, I'm the real guy. I, you should go. But then like the clone makes a clone of himself and like it gets out of control. But somehow in that, there's a movie version of Interstellar Pig. I think maybe the character goes to see it or something. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this, that one was just kind of like for fun. But then when he wrote um, Parasite Pay, which is a sequel, he said, um, and it's like afterward, it's like, oh, um, I wrote this because of Interstellar Pig, which is probably going to be a movie. So clearly it was kind of somewhere in development. And like a lot of um, authors, he got really excited about being optioned and it, then it just never panned out. Yeah. And I think that happens to so many authors, unfortunately. Yeah. Who knows how far it got. But, and, uh, and, the, and the sequel, I tried looking up the story and there's not much. Like Wikipedia says he has to get a job to pay for the repairs of the house. And then the aliens still have plans for Barney. He must deal with talking parasites, giant crustaceans, and a wasp woman. So they just interview, inter- introduce more aliens. But there's nothing as to what the actual story is. And the critical reception is mostly positive. But the Washington Post said, the dialogue is deficient. The characterization read out of Scooby-Doo, the budding romance inane. What propels it or not is its ideas, which was, I think, pretty typical yeah. of 80s, of 80s sci-fi. There's, there's some interesting ones, um, some interesting ideas. The, the idea for Parasite Pig was... Uh, the parasite is, um, he actually takes, in the first book, he takes a pill to, uh, to render himself immune to various diseases, which is what allows him to survive the uh, lichen when it shows up because it can't eat him. But that okay. pill is, um, is a parasite that lives in his mind and is now kind of driving him to do things. It's a toxoplasma virus, which is like a real thing that can get in your brain, but this is like a, an alien version. The book has a really great opening line because it's something like in a hole, there lived a parasite. And the whole thing is like a takeoff of the beginning of The Hobbit, <laughs> uh, the, the, the original line. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, overall, it's, um, none, of the, none of the other aliens are back. It's mostly about him being on this crab planet where they're trying to fatten him up and eat him. And, and he has to eventually escape. Um, it's just, it just, um, it feels like it's not as, uh, there are so many ways you could go with um, what's established in the first one. And I really don't think they like capitalized on that much at all. It felt like a completely different universe. Yeah. And the, he was coming back to it 20 years later. So who, yeah. who knows? But yeah, well, I, I actually, when I discovered that um, there was so much other stuff by him after really liking Interstellar Pig as a kid, I kind of went on a, went on like a Sleater tour and read a whole bunch of his stuff. And I mean, at the end I was like, there's a reason why Interstellar Pig is the one everyone's heard of. Cause it's, it's, <laughs> uh, I mean, some of them are good. Some of them are not so good, but Interstellar Pig is really like pretty much the top one. Um, that and House of Stairs, which are the two, the two really famous ones are the ones that are really good. Here's the only other thing I had down. I think it's really interesting what the insight you get into the aliens from what they're offering to Barney in the, in the scene where they kind of all each individually get him alone and offer him something. Uh, so Xena offers him the chance to be super intelligent and be the smartest person on earth and run everything. Manny offers him eternal youth, essentially. Uh, like it's just, just something that'll keep him young forever. Okay. And sort of brags about being, um, you know, would you, would you believe that I'm 137 in relative years? <laughs> and you're not, it's not really clear how, that really works because it's a disguise anyway at that point. So I don't know if the disguises have to reflect their ages, but and you could uh, be and, and Joe and Joe offers him the chance to travel around the galaxy, seeing everything. You get this insight into them as themselves, what they value, and I think they're they're very fascinating characters because they're all antagonists, but they're also antagonists for each other. And you get enough of Barney overhearing them when, they're, when they don't know that he's listening to, to get that while they're, while they're enemies, they're also kind of friends because they've been in this thing forever, chasing around, uh, trying to get this thing. And they're essentially the only peers in either of them has. They kind of talk about how they've been traveling around on Earth. Kind of, they've kind of been researching where the piggy is, but you get the sense that they also just had a lot of fun going to Europe and different things and playing around. 
Um, and you know, it's doesn't, it's not going to stop them from backstabbing each other uh, the second that it's actually going to help them win. But at the, at the same point there, they have this weird frenemy vibe that I think would be really interesting to explore. Yeah. And they are also all working together on this sort of ruse they're pulling over on Barney. Yeah. By playing the sort of board game version of this with them, they're really kind of training him to do the real life and death version. So it's kind of not necessarily they want him to win, but they want him to be like a decent adversary. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the areas where the book um, either maybe didn't have a clear idea or he was going for something really subtle because uh, I don't think it's ever really explained in the book. There's a lot of stuff in the book where, I mean, as you find out later, um, a lot of stuff about the game is actually a lie that the piggy, um, the piggy itself, which is a sentient thing, has um, has been influencing events in such a way as to get the things it wants to happen to happen. But yeah, um, yeah, it's not really explained. So that's, uh, that's actually something really interesting you could do in a movie is try to dig into why, what their motivation is for kind of bringing him in. And maybe you could even have them kind of recognize some spark of uh, familiarity in them because they feel like they would be really lonely people. They've been, you know, doing this for a long time and they can't completely uh, rely on anyone. They have, this temporary alliance, um, and even that is not, there's not really, they can't confide in each other because ultimately they can't trust each other. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's something you could, you, could kind of, uh, you could kind of dig into if you had a, a movie thing to do. Yeah, uh, well, th- thinking about it just now, the reveal at the end is that, you know, the game is real and the loser's planet actually does get blown up. So now suddenly Barney's got to protect like the whole earth. So if those are the stakes, they may not want to keep playing this game, but they feel like they have to to protect their own planet. So like, let's make the best of it and sort of hang out because we're all in the same boat here trying to yeah, not um, lose this game. But then if we can spoil a 35 year old book, there's this great like series of reveals where once Barney finds the piggy, the piggy reveals that it's actually the reverse and the person who gets the piggy in the end, their planet gets blown up and it's all like a trick. And yeah, then that's, that that's turns out first. to also be fake. And it's actually the piggy has put on this whole thing and convinced them all that this is life and death thing just a little take him from planet to planet. Yeah. He gets to see the galaxy. Yes. Essentially what Barney figures and what is heavily applied to be true is that the piggy is just kind of a, a probe of some kind, a recording device. And its goal is to just get into, it can't move on its own, but it wants to get into different situations and experience different cultures. And its best way of doing that is to manipulate a lot of aliens into wanting it. I mean, you notice, I mean, when you talk about they don't really want to be in the game, at no point in the game is there ever any reward for being in it. There's no benefit to joining in the game. So you wonder kind of how they got started and they probably either got sucked into it by other people or the piggy itself kind of manipulated them into it. Yeah, even in the board game version, you don't get anything for winning. Do you? you just die if you lose. Yeah, so, uh, and they all talk about um, when he asks them, how do you know what happens at the end? Um, and how does the game continue going if everybody but one player dies? And, you know, what happened at the end of the last game? And they said, well, we don't know. We're still on the first one. And it's apparently just been going on and on for a very long uh, period of time. Which makes sense. Like yeah. the piggy never lets the, vo- never lets yeah. the, uh, the yeah. game end. Well, I was also thinking if you don't have Alan Tudyk as one of the aliens, you could plug him in here as the voice of the piggy. Oh, yeah. Boy, here, I, you know what? I didn't even think of casting the piggy, even though the piggy does have a voice and speaks. Yeah, and it's really just one scene, but that's kind of where you want you know, yeah, most somebody who's going of... to walk in and do one scene and nail it because he's been in like a couple of Pixar movies. He's, done, he's actually done a lot of really good voice work. Yeah, most of what the piggy says is recordings that it's gathered, which is sort of how Barney figures out what's going on. Um, 
it says some alien things. Um, it says some things from the alien that originally crashed on Earth. It also says some things, um, things that the sea captain and his brother said. And later he hides it inside a yearbook and it starts reading off um, statistics from things in the yearbook, and which sets up this the very great um, ending where it's, um, the piggy gets stolen by a, an, another race, uh, which is uh, this sort of algae colony, sentient algae colony that um, lands on Earth behind the others and manages, um, and Barney, when he thinks that the piggy is going to blow up, he tricks the algae into taking it. And, uh, and he kind of watches it fly off. The aliens pursue it. And he's kind of standing up looking at this guy wondering, so is the earth doomed or am I going to see a huge explosion or is just nothing going to happen? And what happens at the end is basically nothing happens. And the last scene is the algae uh, holding the piggy and it's rattling off like, you know, Dirk Johnson was the uh, all state basketball champ in 1957. And this, this sentient algae is just completely baffled by what's supposed to be happening. All right. Well, we've gotten to the end. So I think that's our yeah. movie. Okay. I guess, yeah, we got through the whole thing. So thanks a whole lot for having me on. Oh, sure. Thanks again to Steph Cherrywell. And is there a good place to find your work online or anything? I just search your name. Okay. Um, yeah, so you can find my books on Amazon there. Um, I believe there's still copies on there. They were pretty, uh, very small, uh, small press and small runs. So I don't, uh, I don't know that they're that widely available, but I think that I think people are still selling them used on Amazon. They're still still on the site because I was looking up to see. Okay, somebody's still got them. Somebody's selling them from somewhere. <laughs> and um, for my uh, games, you can look on the Interactive uh, Fiction Database. Um, the most recent ones, uh, I would look up Zazzled, which is a, sort of a prohibition one about fighting ghosts in a hotel, and Brain Guzzlers from Beyond, which is uh, set in a sort of 50s B-movie. They're all text adventures, um, sort of like the old Infocom ones. So very niche interest, but um, they were in contests and they actually uh they they won the last couple that i submitted them in so i think they're pretty solid um if you like that sort of game and uh, there's also a um there's a rock paper shotgun article on steph's games from a couple years back that's just oh yeah yeah it's a nice overview of all their work and uh and gives you a little idea of what all the games are if you want to, you know, read a preview before you jump in. Yep, I mean, there's definitely, um, the, like, the ones you mentioned at the beginning are, um, Chlorophyll is pretty good. Whitefield Academy of Witchcraft is, um, it's very, it's like the first one. It's very formative. That's not the one I would recommend to people to start with because it's kind of, uh, it's definitely a first game kind of thing. Oh, sure. Okay. All right, well, go online and check those out. Uh, if you have any thoughts on our Interstellar Pig movie or ideas for the movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at YMovie. You can find my column, Wiki Wormhole, on the AV Club every Sunday. You can hear my weekly radio show, more great music, and other lesser podcasts on subjectmedia.org. Stay safe out there. Wear a mask. Wait, actually, by the time this is done, we might have a vaccine. So stay safe out there. Take the vaccine. And we'll be back next time on... Why, 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 why is this not a movie?